Hi, and welcome to The Joy of Text, a podcast about Judaism and sexuality. In this episode, we will be discussing problems that couples face with Har Chakot, distancing during the time of Nida. We will then be joined by Dr. Deborah Race Fox to talk about her experience as a Kala teacher. Finally, we will answer more listener questions. With me to discuss this are Dr. Batsheva Marcus, the Clinical Director of the Medical Center for Female Sexuality and a founding member of the Jewish Orthodox Feminist Alliance, and Rabbi Dov Linzer. Rabbi Linzer is the Rosh Yeshiva Rabbinic Dean of Yeshivat Chovvei Torah Rabbinical School. My name is Maharat Rami Smith, and welcome to The Joy of Text. Rabbi Linzer, can you start off by telling us a little bit about the Har Chakot? What are they? The English translation is technically distance, but can you maybe explain to us why that might not be the best? Sure. Thing? In the Torah, the Torah only says that husband and wife are not, that sex is prohibited when the woman is a nida. The actual act of sex itself. I think in a previous episode, we talked about the position of Rambam, that that would also include certain types of sexual behavior not of the same level of prohibition. But that's from the uh, Torah's perspective. The harchakot are a whole collection of different types of behaviors that the rabbi said should not be occurring between husband and wife for one of two reasons, either because of a concern that it might lead to them having sex or because of a concern that if sex was forbidden, then certain acts of physical intimacy would be in the same sort of category, you know, at the edges of that category of sex, and therefore also something that should not be being done during this time. And again, these are a whole different range of practices, which are some are based on the Talmud, some develop after the Talmud, some are minhag, some are customs, some are more strict halacha, and it's a wide range of practices. And what I should say is, and maybe I'll just mention a few of them to make it concrete, And some of the more extreme examples, so husband and wife are not supposed to even touch, even casual touch, not sexual touch. And then that gets, another layer gets added on that, which is they're not supposed to pass objects to one another because they might come to touch. And then another layer gets added on that, and they're not even supposed to throw an object to one another because that might come to actual leading to passing, leading to touching. And you can see that it really gets to like maintaining a lot of distance between them far beyond the issue of actual, of actual sex. So the question really is, how did we get there? How, where did all of these come from? Maybe I'll say just one thing about some of the real world realities around this and why this is such a struggle. And I think it can often be a, a struggle for men and for women. Sometimes people say, oh, Nida must be so hard. You're not having sex, you know, 12 days out of the month. And my sense is, I'm sure for some couples that's very challenging. But for a lot of couples, it's not the not having intercourse 12 days a month that's so challenging. It's the not being able to be physically intimate, whether it means physical sexual touch, whether it even just means any form of touch, that can be a real challenge. And it can be hard, I think, sometimes for men in one way and for women in another. For men, it can be hard because, and I'm going to generalize here, but, you know, men, by and large, have a harder time talking about their emotions and being affectionate. I'm not even talking about sexual, but being, you know, affectionate through words. And it's very hard sometimes, I think, for a lot of men to feel that they're connecting to their wives, again, not sexually, just any form of connecting, if they can't put a hand, uh, you know, touch, you know, even like like a, a gentle touch. So that can, I think, sometimes be a real challenge for men. And I think a real challenge for women is, is that because so much of this has to do with her state of being Anita, another example of something that really can become a challenge is you can't eat at the same table without some type of a, something special there to signal that the woman is Anita, the man isn't supposed to eat from her leftover food, and all these things combined make the woman 
Sometimes, I mean, sometimes not, but some, I've definitely heard a lot of women that feel like it makes me feel like taboo. I have the cooties, I am something that is, there's this big problem with me that my husband has to keep his distance in such an extreme way. So I think that there's a lot of emotional, relational challenges that come as a result that um, not ha have nothing to do with the issue of intercourse and not having sex. Yeah, I, I just want to jump in here because I think that dichotomy that you built I think the fact that men can't touch makes it hard for them to express themselves, but that's also hard for the wives often because mm. that's the way their husbands express that they love them. So I think that that's relevant. And I think for women also sometimes it just changes the whole tenor of the relationships, kind of not touching each other. So I think those ways in which it affects people is, are very powerful, and I think each person really responds differently. So I just want I no, want I to think that's that an excellent point. And I do want to say, you know, that sometimes what people are told is, oh, this is a wonderful opportunity this period of time because it allows you to connect with one another in non-physical ways. And again, I think that, listen, if it were non-sexual ways, then yeah, that would be allow for different forms of focusing on how to connect if there could be some type of touch. But I think because it's, there's no touch at all in all of these other things, it can be a real challenge to try to connect, again, because of, depending on who the people are, to try to really have a uh, affectionate, meaningful type of connection during this time. So that's a real challenge that couples face. You know, I always phrase. have to laugh when I hear people say that because I, I find that so irritating. This, oh, it allows you to develop other ways to communicate besides physical. So I think, how would people feel if they were presented with the opposite? You can be as physical with each other as you want, but please let's not catch you talking. <laughs> like, would we think of that as a positive thing? No, <laughs> right? So to a certain degree, it sort of shows the primacy that some groups put on the verbal over the physical, and I don't always think that's so great. So I just think we should all be aware of the fact that it's halacha, we need to do it. Exactly. Sometimes it can be helpful to people. I can lay out some ways in which I think sometimes people like it, but that it's a big challenge, and it might not be a great thing to relationships, but that doesn't matter. People need to address it anyway. Exactly, and I do think that, I don't know if people from the outset would have said, oh, wouldn't it be great if we just talked and didn't touch? I think sometimes what you get is apologetics. You know, you have this halacha, it is a big challenge for a lot of people, so this is an attempt to reframe it in a positive way. And maybe it does work for some people. And I certainly don't mean to suggest everybody has a problem with it, but a lot of people do, and you're absolutely right. I mean, look, if we're committed to halacha, we're committed to observing it, whatever the challenges are, but sometimes it's very invalidating to say, oh, it's supposed to work so wonderfully, rather than to actually acknowledge, you know, no, actually it can be a really big challenge. So we can own the difficulty and the challenge without suggesting that we're, we're not committed to doing all the details of halacha. I'm actually quite interested in how this developed because some of you, some of the listeners may know or may not know Carol Newman. She's on the Jofa board. She's slightly older, and she always laughs. She said, you know, when I learned Hilchonida back in the whatever, you know, 50 years ago when I was getting married, um, nobody dealt with all these little things. They said, don't have sex. Like, that's what mm -hmm. you did. Just don't have sex, you know? She said, I can't believe it when I hear people talking about the not touching and the not hugging and the not kissing. She said, are you kidding me? And I grew up in an Orthodox home and I was clear that I was keeping tired to Shabbat. So it's fascinating to me from a sociological perspective a little bit how this has developed over the years. Right. Did she, did she mention whether she was told not to have one, not to share this? I did not ask her that question. <laughs> I did not ask that question. But I do remember my mother laughing when I was getting married and she sort of rolled her eyes at all the details that I was learning. And that again, when and she, this was a woman who... Did they used to drive 70 miles to get to a mikvah when she first got married. So it was clearly an important part of their life, but she couldn't understand all the minutia that we were being taught at the time. 
And I remember she really went over the edge when she saw that there were Badika claws. Then I was like, oh my God, what is going on? Anyway, so I, I do think sociologically, the world has shifted a little bit and we should just be acknowledging right. of that. And I'm glad you brought that up. You know, that goes to a point that Chaim Soloveitchik makes in his article, Rupture and Reconstruction, about like, how much is our entire religious life now, halachic life, defined by what's in the text as opposed to the mimetic tradition, the oral tradition of just the rhythms of life that's passed down. And, you know, one really does wonder exactly what you said, that even in seriously observant communities, do we know that they were doing all of these details of these harchakot as it's written in the Shulchan Aruch? You know, or maybe actually it wasn't exactly that. And it would be interesting if we could try to get access to that information. But you really do wonder that. Like, particularly, I think, in this area, I wonder it more than in other areas. You know, how much were people asking the rabbis about the leftover food? I mean, you find to vote about it, but I really do wonder how much it's become this focus on the minutia. You know, is that a relatively recent phenomenon? I also think that this is, like, an incredibly daunting thing for men and women, maybe even especially women, to learn right before their weddings. And with the kalas that I've taught and kalas that I haven't taught who've reached out, I hear a lot that harchakot are especially hard in the beginning of marriage because you're kind of learning how to be physical with one another. So to have to be shifting and learning how to communicate verbally, but also learning how to communicate physically, harchakot, they seem to be, I'm sure they don't really ever get easier, but it seems to be a really big challenge that couples are facing in the first year, or the first few months of their marriage, because they're kind of learning this language with one another. Yeah, and I want to say one other thing, and then I do want to turn to this question about the history and how it developed in the Gemara, but which is that because sometimes it's hard, like, how can I talk? And I'm not good at talking about my feelings. I don't, you know, if I can't communicate, if I can't touch, it's a problem. And then, because there are these other things, like there's a, a halacha, one of the harachakos is that a man isn't supposed to gaze at his wife sexually during this period. Now, maybe that's only on parts of her body that are normally covered up even in the house or her genitalia or whatever it might be. But like, so a man's wife is coming out of the bathroom, out of the shower. So it's easier just not to look, right? Rather than, oh my God, maybe I'm looking sexually or something. And sometimes what happens is it leads to this mode of just like avoiding one another because it's easier to avoid than to try to engage and navigate all of that. I've actually seen that play out as well. So it, those are some real, real challenges. I wanted to just comment on one thing Ramey said because I, I think it's really relevant. I think it's fascinating. In the development of the last 20 years or so, so I got married about 30 years ago, and there was no such thing as using the birth control pill in an extended version. So nowadays, you can use a birth control pill continuously for three months, and then get off it for two weeks, and then get back on it for three months, and get off it for two weeks. And that has totally shifted the view of Hilchot Nida and the Hachako, like dramatically, because when I got married, there was no option. Like it was 12 days, or, you know, 14 days on and 12 days off, or 16 days on and 12 days off. That is a huge number of off days for the on days. And at the point where birth control pills become available, and so you can have what I'll call for right now, like a normal physical life for three months, and then you're off for 12 days, and then back on for three months, that feels like a completely right. different scenario to me. So I have kind of a love-hate relationship with birth control pills, because I think they can do damage sexually, like they can do problematic things. But from a nida and a hachakot perspective, they are a godsend. And I want to just say the parallel to that is my wife has a sister in Lakewood and who, you know, is married to a guy who's learning in Lakewood. 
And it's like, she can't relate. Like, why is Nida difficult? Why are her chakos difficult? And all of a sudden realize she hasn't really been a Nida for like 10 years because by the time she's, she's had one child, <laughs> then she gets pregnant with the next, you right. know? So when, when, yeah. when people are not using birth control and are nursing and having children on a very regular basis, then the women also aren't need them, you know, for long, long stretches of time. So it, I it, think, yeah, I think that plays back to the development of the Har Chakot and just the different realities that people faced in practicing Nida back at the time when all of these decisions were being made. Women were not having their periods for that long. A lot of women weren't even making it through childbirth to continue having to keep Nida. So the whole discussion of the 12 days on and then however many days off was so different because women's bodies were so different and family realities were so different. It's just so interesting. Rabbi Linzer, we've talked about the different shades of gray in terms of touching. And I was just wondering in Harchakot, do those different shades hold true as well? Are there certain Harchakot that are worse than others? So yeah, there certainly are different shades and different degrees. I've mentioned at the outset, some come later, post the Gemara, after the Gemara, some come as a custom and not as a real law. So that's certainly true. But you know what? Rather than jump right into that type of stratification, maybe this is a good opportunity to talk about how the harchakot really developed, and then we'll get to talking about that. So I think the first thing that's really important to put on the table, because I mentioned the issue that how a woman can often feel like she's somehow taboo when all these harchakot are being practiced. It's fascinating, really, how much that was an idea. It's been like in a lot of past societies, they had menstrual taboos, and it was an idea that actually was prevalent among some of the population within the Jewish community at the time of the Talmud. And it's fascinating how much the rabbis completely ignored and rejected it, really rejected it in silence. So let me first say like where we see this idea. There's a text that's called Breita de Mesechet Nida. Nobody knows exactly who wrote it when it was written, but it was something written probably in the Gaonic period. And this text uses a lot of rabbinic and halachic language to talk about how any food that a woman touches when she's a nida becomes dangerous to the health and that you have to avoid breathing in the same air and walking on the ground that she walked on because all of these sort of demonic forces that surround her when she is a nida. And Ramban actually quotes this in his commentary on the Torah and explaining when a lovan walks into the tent and Rachel says, oh, I can't get up because I, I have the way of women, I'm menstruating. So the Ramban says that she knew that could get him to like leave the tent because he wouldn't want to be anywhere near her if she's menstruating because of these demonic forces that could be injurious to the health. So there definitely were these popular ideas that were out there. And what's amazing is how the Gemara, by not addressing it, completely rejects it. You know, I sometimes tell my students, it's like what they tell you when you engage, when there's a missionary. The worst you could do from the missionary's perspective is ignore him. Because if you engage him, there's a certain amount that you're sort of validating. And you would read the Gemara and you would have no idea that there were these taboos out there. So it was much more effective to ignore it as a way of pushing this away, as not a way of thinking about Nida. But it's important to know that that was there. And one, I think, passage that alludes to this is the Gemara says in Shabbat that these Kenim Rishonim, the earlier generations, used to say when the verse says that a woman is a nida, it meant that she can't put on jewelry and she can't dress up nicely and she can't look nice. Until Rabbi Akiva came and taught, no, all it means when she's a nida is it means that that's her halachic status until she goes to the mikvah. So it seems like these earlier approaches were saying that the word nida itself meant somehow that she's cast off and she has to be distanced. 
And Rabbi Akiva is saying, that's a taboo. That's not halacha. Halacha is just. That's her halachic status. And we should not have all of these taboos. So I think that's really important that the Gemara rejects a taboo idea. At least that's where we start in terms of these issues of harchakot. And one other really, I think, colorful example of this is that when the Gemara discusses the issue about sharing a bed, so the question is, can husband and wife share a bed? Are we afraid it will lead to sex? So maybe, says the Gemara, well, if they're wearing pajamas and they're not naked together, because when she wasn't Anita, they would be naked together. So maybe if they're wearing pajamas, that'll be enough to remind them that she's Anita and they won't have sex. Um, and will that be enough or not? So the Gemara says, well, maybe it should be like if you're at a table and you're eating cheese and somebody else is eating meat, and if you put something on the table to remind you, then that'll be good enough and you won't come to eat the other person's meat or cheese. So here, too, wearing pajamas will be enough. So what's so funny comparing <laughs> husband and wife being in bed together with meat and cheese is that the Gemara is really saying, don't treat this different than any other halacha. This is not like, oh my God, she's Anita. How could we even think of them being in the same bed? No, it's just a normal halacha about what type of precautions do we have to take. So I think it's really refreshing when you appreciate how much the Gemara, by silence, really said, do not take a taboo approach to this. It's pure halacha. Like, what are the normal things we have to do to safeguard and to create reasonable sense of distance? And with that in mind, it's interesting to know that the actual harchakot in the Gemara are maybe fewer than you can count on one hand. The actual harchakot mentioned in the Gemara, I'll tell you what they are. Four, maybe five. One is, don't share a bed, even if you're wearing pajamas. That's a conclusion of that Gemara. Then the other three are really one group, which is uh, the wife can't make the bed, which is seen as a particularly intimate act for the husband. She can't pour his cup of wine, which is also seen as very intimate, like very personal. And she can't wash his hands and face and feet. Those are the things mentioned in the Gemara. The Gemara does not even mention a casual touch, although almost all of the Rishonim assume that that's included. So that's what you have in the Gemara. And everything else is based on what the Rishonim either interpreted that the Gemara was saying or based on practices that developed after the Gemara. So far, I've never had a woman complain to me that she can't make her husband's bed. Have you read anything about that? Well, I would say halacha very interestingly or concludes. Or wash his feet. Halacha very interestingly concludes that the wife could make the bed in terms of straightening the bed. She just can't like put on a special cover and so fluff on, fluff the pillows. But to get the bed actually made, that's okay. okay that's fine. So we've got that covered. So then, you know, the question is where these other things develop from. And some of them are based on ways things are interpreted in the Gemara, this idea of sharing a plate and eating the remainder of the food. There are ways in which that's read out from the Gemara, but a lot of Rambam has very few harchakot that are not in the Gemara. And in some Rishonim, you have a lot. And either they'll explicitly acknowledge that these are customs, like the idea of passing objects or even not throwing objects is acknowledged as a custom. And some are actually claimed to be actually based on a particular Gemara. So then, you know, it becomes the question that when you see how some of these develop in different ways, and one thing that I should also mention is the one thing I think that to me most sort of resonates with this other idea that was out there that I said got ignored by the Gemara, but was still hovering out there, this taboo idea, is eating the leftover food. What is the problem with a husband eating the leftover food of his wife? And she can eat his leftover food, he can't eat hers. And some of this is, you see, because the Ramal says, well, there are some that say that's only a problem when she's actively menstruating. But when she's not actively menstruating, it's not a problem. So that seems to be one of those things that still was from that world of somehow the taboo around Nida, and that still somehow found its way into the halachic literature. 
Now, the later posts can reject that. They say, oh, there's no halachic basis for distinguishing, so it's a problem at all times. But I think it is interesting where sometimes there are still some faint echoes of this other approach out there. I'm sort of amused a little bit because I feel like that could be really intimate. Just think about, you know, there's this folk song about sharing a soda, you know, <laughs> about the prettiest girl I ever saw was drinking something through a straw, I don't remember, lemonade through a straw or right. something. And then at the end of the song, they're both drinking lemonade mm -hmm. through the straw. There is something intimate about two people well, I'm eating. I'm not talking from about the same sharing form. and eating from the same plate at the same time. That, someone showed him to say, is actually even in the Gemara, although it's a question how you interpret that. I'm talking about. My wife, she drank from her a cup of soda, or she cut a piece of chicken, and then it's like, oh, can, you're not eating the rest. Can I have it? And I put it on my plate, and I scrape it off of her plate, and put it on my plate, it might still be forbidden because it's her leftover food. So but now there are questions. There are ways in which that gets limited, and if she's really done eating, it's not a problem, and maybe trying to make it closer to the example that you said. But there are ways in which it's not. And look, the Ashkenazi we've shown him, there does seem to be in other places, or the post game, this echo of some of this taboo stuff, in areas about women carrying, a, touching a Sefer Torah, or women coming into show when they're in need, or even reading a Siddur, you know, saying brachot. Different attitudes, particularly in Ashkenaz, that developed around, that were not at all based on the Gemara, but because of this other thing that was going on. So what's interesting, and I want to throw something out there in case anybody's thinking about it. So I remember a conversation with my husband before we got married when we were talking about some of these hachakot. I was saying how difficult they strike me, and my husband was laughing a little bit. He said, you know, not holding your hand or not kissing you, that's going to be hard. Not sharing food off your plate really isn't going to bother me that much. And I remember thinking that what occurred to me at that point is the discourse or the kind of language that we're using when we're learning about these things. And that falls into that category. And I want to raise it here just because I know that's something we're going to hopefully discuss on another podcast. The whole issue of the meta picture of this. What does this mean in terms of women? The kind of discourse that happens, the kind of discussions that take place do we find those difficult? For today, we're really just focusing on the kind of practical ramifications. I just wanted to throw that in there. And I know you're going to talk a little bit about the black and white, the Fifty Shades of Gray. Right, because I do have to, we have to get back to Ramey's question, and that was to give like an overview of some of the development. I'm not going into, obviously, every single one in detail, but I think to get a sense of the lay of the land. One thing I will say, you know, we talked about ways in which to try to frame it so it's, we can understand it in a more positive way. You know, a point that a number of the Rishoni make, and this really is worth making because we're talking about some of this taboo stuff as maybe being somewhere out there, you know, not in the Gemara's discourse, but hovering somewhere, is that in cultures where they had menstrual taboos, women would not share the tent with their husband. You know, that would be like, what is it, the red tent? You know, they'd be sent away from the camp or sleep in a different room. And because, again, so much danger from this menstruating woman. And the amazing thing is that the rabbis have no problem with husband and wife sharing a room. And even from a halachic perspective, how can we trust them? It's so easy to just have sex. They're sleeping in the same room together. And we still say, no, you know, if you're not in the same bed, we, we trust you. So that's, I think, very powerful to acknowledge that because people say, like, what, the rabbis think they can't trust me? They have to make a million safeguards? Well, the most obvious temptation is you're sharing the same bedroom and it's the most obvious taboo, and that doesn't apply. And some Rishonim say, well, because that we were sort of so lenient there, we had to be so strict in these other areas to create some sense of counterbalance. So I don't know if that works for some people to sort of deal with it, but however you understand it, the sharing of the bedroom is, I think, an important point. I feel like we would be missing an opportunity if we didn't say that this taboo about women having their period doesn't still exist, even outside the Jewish community, as Donald Trump asked Megyn Kelly if she was menstruating during the He didn't debate. exactly and, say those words, but... <laughs> and not only that, but I have to give a little piece of trivia in here. Somebody recently told me she has some Italian friends, 
And this time of year, they always get tomatoes fresh from the farm and they make tomato sauce and they batch it up for the whole year. And if you're menstruating, you are not allowed to make the tomato sauce. And it's not a religious thing because they're not religious. It's just a thing, you know? <laughs> I think it's hysterical. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. I think there's, there's still a lot of taboo mm -hmm. around women who are menstruating. Right. So look, when it comes to the practical questions, the issues that are in the Gemara, the sharing of the bed, the three that are in the Gemara are the ones that are usually not a problem at all. The making the bed, the pouring the wine, the washing the face. So the ones in the Gemara, the ones that are seen as clear in the Gemara, the sharing the bed and almost universally understood is also like even casual touch. Those are the ones that are treated the most strictly, which doesn't mean that there can't be some really special circumstances. The question comes, and we'll, we don't want to deal with this here, but just put it out there, husband holding his wife's hand when she's in childbirth. So there might be some very special circumstances, but those are treated, you know, certainly in terms of on an ongoing basis as clearly the most strict. And then the other ones are more questionable if they come from the Gemara or not and might be more based on custom and so on. And again, clearly for the community that is committed to halacha, however they developed, they're part of halacha. We keep by it. We keep by the details. That's what it means to be a halachic Jew. But what happens when a couple is struggling with some of these things? You know, I had somebody say to me, Rabbi, if we could just not worry about this passing thing, it would make like a huge difference. So it really depends who people ask. They'll ask certain poskim and they'll say certain rabbis, and they'll say, I'm sorry, there's no way you can be lenient about any of this. And there are others that will say, we'll take into account the challenge that the couple is facing, issues of shalom bias, and the weightiness or you know, where this falls out within the various degrees of how serious this particular one is, and maybe give them a temporary allowance. Like, while this continues to be a struggle for you, you know, you don't have to worry about the passing thing. Maybe at a later stage, it won't be such a struggle, but that's something that's necessary for your marriage right now. Some people would be, like, scandalized to hear that there would be somebody that might actually allow it. But other areas of halacha, there are extreme circumstances, and we weigh how serious the restriction is, and it depends on who you're asking, how they feel that they're going to navigate those realities. And I really need to jump in and hazard you to not throw out the baby with the bathwater. If you feel like some of these add-ons are just too difficult, don't make a decision based on, okay, if I can't not sleep in the same bed, then I'm just going to throw it all out the window, not go to the mikvah, have sex whenever I want. It shouldn't work that way. Why is it that we look at these things so black and white, whereas we don't say that about other things? Just because you decided that you're going to eat cottage cheese outside does not necessarily mean that you're going to eat ham. So I think that's a really important point to make. I really appreciate that. You know, it's one thing, you know, a couple that says we want to do full halacha, but we're really struggling with this one point. And it's another which is saying, we can't, this is so overwhelming, forget it all. And you know, how a rabbi might advise them or the type of decision making that they themselves make, understanding that there's a hierarchy here is helpful for people exactly doing what you said, not realizing it's all or nothing. I need to put a plug in here for talking this out. You know how I always talk about like parents have to talk to their kids and it's really hard because you don't actually know what you want to say. You need to talk about this. You need to talk about this before you get married. You need to talk about this while you're married. If a couple is committed to keeping X, then they will keep it together. If couples have different levels of observance or haven't really committed, then it becomes a struggle and test of wills every single month. And that is not a position that you want to be in. You want to be in a position where you guys are working together for this marriage. So I would just throw out there that talking about it, talking about what you plan to do, how you're going to handle situations, 
is really important before you get married, and it's really important as the marriage continues. I know, Dove, you made a reference to the fact that childbirth is different, and I think we're going to do, again, another podcast, hopefully, on the whole ramifications of pregnancy, childbirth, right after you have a baby, because that does feel like a unique situation. But in any event, life changes constantly, and talking about it seems an imperative to me. Maybe on that note, I'll end with a thought for guys that are having a hard time talking uh, when they can't touch. Uh, <laughs> what occurred to me when you were talking is a beautiful passage from Rabbi Nachman from Breslov. He has a beautiful passage talking about how do you pray when you're not praying from a sitter? How do you actually talk to God? And he says, what do you do if like, you feel you don't know what to say to God? So he says, well, talk to God about the fact that you don't know what to say to him. And once you start talking, you know, things will then flow. And I think just being able to say, it's really hard for me because I feel that I can't talk, I can't connect, and I can't articulate how I'm feeling without the ability to touch, I think that that itself is just very powerful. So I think that people have to learn to bring words to that. Yeah, I guess I want to add one thing, which I feel bad about because your ending is so beautiful. <laughs> I feel like this is one of those halachot, and it's probably another one, where being honest with yourself is crucial because not liking something is not the same as having it be problematic to the marriage. This is a set of halachot that are difficult and complicated. And, you know, I'd say most people don't like it. Although, and let me throw out there that there are women who will say, like, it's nice having a little bit of private time all by myself, my own bed, my own space. I assume men feel the same way. But for a lot of people, this is a big, big, big struggle. But having something be a struggle is not necessarily a bad thing. It just is. And so I think with a little sensitivity to that as a community— and people being open to the idea that sometimes things are a struggle, that does not necessarily mean that it should just be ignored. Yeah. The people that come to the rabbi are the people that aren't just having a hard time. That, I mean, aren't having struggle because it's difficult, but that it actually is affecting their marriage. Thank you. And then I just really appreciate the way you both responded to this in a very halachic, but also a very sensitive and compassionate way. So thank you. Next up, we talk to Dr. Deborah Race Fox. But first, a word from our sponsors. Hi, this is Sarah Levy, Public Relations and Events Assistant at Yeshiva Chovavei Torah Rabbinical School. Yeshiva Chovavei Torah Rabbinical School trains rabbis who are serving Klal Yisrael. We now have close to 100 rabbis in shuls, schools, and hillels throughout North America and in Israel, Europe, and Australia. This podcast is one of the many exciting projects of the Lindenbaum Center for Halachic Studies, which also publishes Tishuvo Responsa on issues facing the modern Orthodox community. To find out more about our rabbi's smicha program or upcoming events, visit www.yctorah.org. In this and other areas, Yeshiva Chovavei Torah Rabbinical School is setting the standard in rabbinic education. Our guest today is Dr. Deborah Race Fox. Dr. Fox is an endocrinologist practicing in Rockland County, New York. She teaches weekly Mishnah classes in her community and lectures on various Torah topics. She has been a Chatan and Kala teacher for 18 years. Dr. Ray Fox, welcome to The Joy of Text. Thank, Thank you for you. joining us. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Can you tell us just a bit about your journey in becoming a college teacher and what you do in Rockland County in your classes? Okay, so the part of Rockland County that you might have heard of is Muncie, and uh, Muncie is sort of known to be a right-wing community, but actually all sorts of people live in Muncie, like in many other places. About 18 years ago, the rabbi of my shul came over to me and said, Debbie, I need you to teach Kala classes. And it was kind of out of the blue. I really had no clue why he wanted me to. I still, to this day, I'm not mm -hmm. sure why he picked me. But, and I kept asking him why. And he said, well, people don't teach it right. I want you to teach it right. And I said, well, you know, 
I've never been trained to do this. And he said, well, just tell them what you do. <laughs> like, How long ago was that? This is 18 years ago. Oh, I thought you said 18 months. Okay. 18 years okay. ago. <laughs> 18 years ago. So I, I said to him, look, if you want me to do this, then let's sit down and you teach it to me and teach me the way. And he actually went down to sources and really taught me the Shulchan Aruch and really gave me a really good basis. But I really went from there and developed my own curriculum. I pretty quickly realized that a college teacher doesn't just teach halachot and doesn't just teach the laws, but really needs to help a couple navigate these laws and help them through their lives. So I pretty much went from being a college teacher to being a chatan and kala teacher. And for the most part, I teach couples. At least three out of the sessions, I pretty much require both of them to be there. Sometimes some of the sessions they have separately. And of course, since I was sort of doing this by myself, I didn't really know anybody who was teaching couples. The whole thing sort of evolved over the course of, of these years, teaching more about sexuality, more about relationship, as well as the halachot. How many couples do you teach a year? So some years I teach five to seven. Um, sometimes I teach three. But, you know, it's been pretty steady through the years. And do you feel like it's evolved? You've changed the way of teach? Or totally you... changed. <laughs> totally changed through the years. I mean, I'm a physician, so I'm used to talking about sexuality, but I think that I've gotten more sophisticated over the years and I guess more courageous and brave about how detailed I think we need to be with people and how open we need to be. Yeah, it's definitely evolved. At the beginning, I thought that the sexuality part would be only with the women. And actually, after some of the couples said, well, why should we separate for that? We both want to be here together. So I have We're to learn how to together. do that. We should talk <laughs> about that. And of course, most of the people that asked to be together already were intimate in some way, though they might not have been having intercourse, but they were comfortable enough to be there together and talk together. And so I had to evolve with that too. And um, so, you know, comfortable either way. Do you teach one couple at a time? Yes. Always one couple at a time. So tell us a little bit about those conversations that aren't just halacha. Like, do you wait to hear their questions? Do you try to bring in Torah sources to frame what uh, sex should be between husband and wife? Is it more, what is it informed by? How do you shape the conversation? Okay, so I guess I should start with kind of the way that I start after I say, hello, you know, who are you? What do you do? That kind of thing. The first thing I say before I teach anything is, okay, tell me what you think about all of this. And I try to put out on the table from day one what their issues are. And so I have the Basiakov type that will say, oh, it's so beautiful. You have two weeks to have your emotional relationship and two weeks to have your sexual relationship. So I know I have to start with, no, I'm sorry, you don't chop yourself in two pieces <laughs> kind of talk. And then you have the couples who are like, this is crazy. This is arcane. This is ridiculous. I don't know why we have to do this. Obviously, if they're there, they're committed on some level to keeping it, but that takes me in a different direction. So I start off by trying to feel for where they are. And then we talk about some just general sort of philosophical things about Nida. Then I go through the halachot. And I hope that by the time I finish the halachot, I have really a better idea of where they are along the spectrum of things. We've already talked about harchakot, and I get an idea about how they um, handle that. So by the time I get to the sexuality part, which is I spend about an hour and a half or so on that, which is usually the last session, I kind of have a pretty good feel for where they are that way. So yes, I definitely frame it with Torah sources. I always start with some sources. I 
start with the story that I know you once talked about with Rav Kahana under the bed, a little bit different than the conclusion that you come to when you were talking about it. You were saying, oh, look at what a great time Rav Kahana, uh, Rav had. But I really focus in my intro to say what Rav Kahana actually said, which is Torah Hevelomot Ani Tzarich, which is that this is Torah too, I need to learn. And so I start with that to Mm -hmm. sort of break the ice and say, however uncomfortable you are, this is something you need to learn about. And it's really, it's all part of Torah. It's all about living a religious life. And so I start with that. And there are other, you know, halachic stories that I start with. Another thing that I talk about is something that um, you alluded to in this, in the last session about also a story of Rav Kahana, a story of Rav Kahana where this heretic comes to him and is kind of mocking and says, you say that Anita can be alone in, with her husband and she's not going to have sex. That's crazy. Can fire and wood chips be together and not burn? That's ridiculous. And then Rav Kahana doesn't answer by saying, oh, but it's a beautiful way to live. And he doesn't answer by saying what Rabbi Mayer says, oh, but wait till the night that you go to the mikvah. That's really great. What he says is we keep it because we keep it. We keep it because we're committed to Torah. And I really want them to get out of this idea of the fire and the chips that burn to say, I try to get these words from them to say the words, it's not natural. There's something unnatural about a husband and a wife who love each other, who are alone in a room together, who are who are together and they can't be intimate with one another. And why do we keep it then? Well, we keep it because we keep it, because we're committed to a halachic life. And so I kind of try to start with that. And then after I frame it with those types of things, I go into the anatomy and show pictures of anatomy. I talk about foreplay. I talk about different kinds of touch. I talk about oral sex, I talk about orgasm, and talk about refractory period afterwards, and I talk about uh, being, you know, cuddly and hugging, and, and I think framing it much more in terms of not just wedding night sex, which a lot of college teachers have talked about in the past, how to, like, get a penis in the vagina on the wedding night, but rather how to have a sexual life together. The couples who come to you, what's their background in sexual education? Where are you starting your college classes from in terms of how much they know about sex and sexuality? So because I'm in Muncie, I really see this crazy spectrum of people. So I can see people who really know zero. I mean, really nothing. Like when I'm telling them anatomy, I'm really telling them anatomy. I really have to tell those girls to take out that mirror and really they know nothing. But also I've kind of developed this niche because I think I'm the only one in Muncie who teaches couples. So I also teach people who have difficulty with this, have issues with this, and they probably are more or less intimate in different ways. I have people who have had sex and who are living together. I've had people from really all across the spectrum, minus Hasidim. (laughs) They won't come to me. What's the biggest challenge been for you? So the biggest challenge is when you have a couple who are really in different places. That is so hard. In other words, they're coming because either the kala or the chatan really want to keep this, and the other one not only thinks it's crazy, but is resentful and angry. And I've had it more times than I would like to say (laughs) where that situation comes up, and that is by far the greatest challenge. So how do you help them in that case? So I try to like get that all out at the beginning. So that is on the table from day one. And I really won't proceed until we come to some place where there's some kind of agreement. Sometimes I actually meet with them separately at that point. In other words, for the one who thinks that this is terrible, I want 
him or her to be able to say everything without the other one's response. Like, say how horrible it is. Say why you think it's terrible. Let's just get it all out there. Put it out. Say the worst things that you wouldn't want to say in front of your partner. And for the one who wants to keep it, they're totally stymied because they're not allowed to say anything negative. So because, you know, if they say something negative or they say something they're worried about, what happens to the other one? What happens to their level of commitment? So we try to start with that. And then it takes a lot of talking. It takes a lot of spending a lot of time. How's that worked out? Do you know? Okay. Do you have follow-ups? So the follow-up, I would say that most of the follow-up, it really depends on the couple's relationship, honestly. The ones that you see from day one, this is not good. Maybe they don't work it out so well. But couples who really respect each other and love each other and want to make this work, they do. And, you know, it really is amazing. I get lots of calls afterwards, and I can tell by the calls that they're keeping it. You get situations where either because there's this profound conflict or because both of them are in a particular place and that place is not full observance, that they actually either ask your advice or say, you know, the question came up about all or nothing. Like, okay, would it be so bad if we did X and not Y? So, and that also brings up the question of nidanta oraita, which is always a very complicated thing. So my strategy with this, and it's very touchy because I'm supposed to be teaching things in a halakhic way, and I do teach things in a halakhic way. So my strategy is always to, from the very beginning, to differentiate between de'oraita, de'rabanan, minhag, and chumran. That is what's biblical, what's rabbinic, what's a stringency, and what's a custom. And that's just the way I teach it. And I don't say, keep this or don't keep that. But then they come to me and say, well, why can't I do this, de'oraita? You know, why don't I just do the seven days and then go to the mikvah? I could live with that. And I will not, I'm not a rabbi. I don't say, okay, you have permission to do this. I never say that to people, but they're smart. <laughs> they can figure things out for themselves. And I basically say, you will be a husband and wife. You will be married. You will have to negotiate this and you will have to decide what you want to do. I'm not the one to say, I'm telling you the halacha. You figure out what you do. Even with more observant couples who are really bought into this, you just talked a lot about harchakot. This question comes up much more often with harchakot, which is like what you were talking about before. I can take this, but I can't take that. I don't say, okay, drop this. You're a rabbi. You might be able to say that. I don't take the liberty to say that. But what I do say is that harchakot are a system of how you relate to one another when you have a period. And you're, you have to figure that out for yourselves. I'm telling you the halacha. You're grownups. Figure it out. So in all levels of that question, I really tell people, look, you're by yourself. You're in your own room, in your own house. you got to work this out. And an interesting thing about NIDA observance is it's probably one of the most serious areas of observance that is not in the public sphere. I mean, sure, we keep Shabbos in our home, and not everybody comes into our home. But, you know, Shabbos and Kashrus, and those are things that a lot of our observance is shaped by communal norms, whereas Nida, you're left on your own, you know? Nobody's going to know what you're doing and not doing, and I think that that's really important that people need to own that responsibility fully because that's a real challenge. Right, and so that's what I try to really encourage them to do. It's like, you got to make your own decision here. You mentioned before the issue came up about follow-up, and I think sometimes the power of a Kala teacher, or a Chassan Kala teacher, even more than a, a rabbi in this area, is that they develop an ongoing relationship so that maybe you proactively check up with them soon after the marriage, they come to you with questions, maybe not just halachic questions, relationship questions. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I mean, I almost always hear from them afterwards on one level or another, sometimes sexual issues, lots of times for halachic issues. 
And since I'm a doctor, it ends up being lots of times for hormonal medical issues. (laughs) (laughs) A little free medical (laughs) consultation. It's unusual not to have follow-up. Now, not everybody is follow-up forever. Most people just will continue to communicate for a while. And then when they have a question, they call me. They text me. You know, half the time I don't even have their number on my phone. And somebody is questioning me with, I did this fatigue on that day. What do I do? I don't know where it's from. (laughs) To try to figure that one out. But, yeah, we get those questions all the time. Is there anything else that you feel like is important for people to know as they head into their lives of looking for a college teacher, using a college teacher, being a college teacher? Well, for being a college teacher, I think that it's very important to really look at the whole thing holistically and not to really focus just on the halacha. The halacha is obviously the essence of what you're doing, but if you don't talk about relationships and attitudes and sexuality, you're really not preparing a couple, and I really see that that's very important. People who don't feel comfortable talking about those issues, or even relationship issues, you have to be comfortable to say, what do you do when there's a conflict between a couple? If you're teaching a couple, you have to be able to handle that. So I think people who become Katankala teachers need to feel that they can handle that situation, that they won't get thrown when they see them arguing or they see them having some dispute. So I think people who are teaching couples or brides need to feel confident that they can really guide people for a lifetime, a lifetime of keeping halacha, a lifetime of living halacha, a lifetime of having a relationship. I think it's important to say that keeping the laws of nida are not necessarily going to guarantee someone a good marriage, just like somebody who davens three times a day could not necessarily ever be talking to God. You know, it depends on what you make out of it. And I think it's important for a chatan kala teacher who are teaching halachot to really help a couple to navigate these halachot and to help use it in a positive way rather than in a negative way. It can certainly be a negative for people who are resentful and angry about it. And that's part of what a chatan kala teacher has to feel that they're comfortable doing. So that's your advice to the people thinking about becoming chatan kala teachers. What about yeah. somebody who's just embarking on finding a kala teacher or... (laughs) (laughs) Well, people have to really get recommendations from other people. I feel like that's word of mouth is the best thing that there is. I think people talk to their friends and find out the different experiences. And I think that it's really important to look for somebody who's going to be open and who's going to be available to teach in that way. And when they talk to their friends, they should be able to ask their friends, were they able to answer your questions? Were they able to talk openly about sex? Did they help you navigate the situation? And I think that's how you have to look for something. I think when people look for other products that they want, they have to investigate it. And I think the same thing should happen when they're looking for a Hatan Kala teacher. I have to ask one last question, which is, I first met you, I think, this summer when you were in the uh, program, the Hassan uh, Kala teacher training program right. that was sponsored by the three institutions that are represented in this room, by Jofa, Chove Torah, and Maharat. So you have so much expertise and experience. What motivated you to participate in the program? And what did that program give you that you didn't already have? Okay, so it's a great question. But have asked me that question before I took the course. <laughs> I have to say that I did this whole kind of development of my course and all on my own. I really never had anyone to bounce it off of. Rabbis in my community didn't really get what I really do. And I really felt the need to network with other people to learn what other people are doing. I was very interested in whether I was doing the sexuality thing right or not, and also wanted to hear different approaches and how to teach, and I did learn those things. I mean, it's true, I had a lot of experience, but 
you can always grow and you can always learn. And I, I was thrilled to take that course. I really felt like it really enriched me and I was very happy to do it. Thinking back to that conversation you had with the rabbi in your community 18 years ago, what's been the most rewarding part of your experience as a Chatan and Kala teacher? You know, it's interesting that he in particular sent all of his daughters, and he lives in Israel now, sent all of his daughters to me before their wedding (laughs) to teach them. And that really meant that even though I've really changed from how it started that even someone who was really a little bit more right-wing, and you would, if you saw him, you would think he was Haredi, though he's quite open-minded, really felt that what I was doing is something that could really appeal to people across the board of orthodoxy. And I really feel best about that part of it, that what I think I do and what I think college teachers should do should not be specific for, you know, open orthodox, modern orthodox, ultra-orthodox, but that every couple needs to be guided pretty much in the same way. And I think that's given me the most satisfaction to be in Muncie and get such a spectrum of people and feel like I could really reach them and help all of them to live a good married life together. That's terrific. Thank Call you. A Thank you Thank so you. much, Deborah Fox, so for joining much. us. <laughs> Next up, we're going to answer a listener question, but first, a word from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Jillian, an intern at Jofa. The Joy of Text is sponsored by Jofa, the Jewish Orthodox Feminist Alliance. Enjoying the podcast? Dr. Batsheva Marcus and Rabbi Dove Linzer continue this conversation on Jofa's website, where they answer more of your questions about sexuality, relationships, and halacha in the form of a blogcast. Visit www.jofa.org slash blogcast to read the full conversation. The Joy of Text is generously supported by Targum Shlishi, a Raquel and Aryeh Rubin Foundation. Erectile dysfunction can do a number on your sex life, your relationship, even your self-esteem, and male infertility could prevent you and your partner from being able to have kids. May's Men's Sexual and Reproductive Health, headed by Medical Director Dr. Michael Werner, is a world leader specializing in treating ED and male infertility, very often with successful outcomes. If you're suffering with ED or fertility issues, call Dr. Werner at 646-380-2600. That's 646 646- 6380-2600 or visit maysmenshealth.com. Our question today is I was told when I got married 10 years ago that a woman can't directly ask for sex. The reason I was given is that sex is a mitzvah and it's not fair to put a man in the position not to be able to fulfill or perform a mitzvah. Is this true? That's a really interesting question because the Talmud actually does say that a woman isn't supposed to ask for sex, but gives a totally different reason. And there's actually one Talmud passage that says that a woman should ask for sex and will have wonderful children as a result. That gets rejected. But when the Talmud does conclude that a woman shouldn't ask for sex, the reason really is that's seen as too forward. Not enough tsanua, modest, to be blatantly asking for sex. It does not give it all this reason. And, you know, thinking about that reason, I'm wondering, maybe we should tell poor people that they shouldn't ask for tzedakah because then they create an obligation on me to respond so it's not fair for them to ask. I'm being facetious. You know, if the whole halacha is that the husband has an obligation, this mitzvah of ona, to be responsive to his wife's needs and desires, then he has to know what those needs and desires are, and that's his mitzvah. And to me, it's a highly formalistic and technical thing to say, well, that then obligates him, and then I'm forcing him into a situation. He is obligated to be responsive to your needs, and you are just letting him know what those needs are. So that is not the reason why a woman is not supposed to ask for sex. And I should say that within the— It's not the reason a woman shouldn't ask for sex. The reason in the Talmud— 
There isn't any reason a woman shouldn't ask for sex. No. So, okay. Okay. So I'm that, sorry. Let me clarify. Okay. <laughs> so the Talmud says a woman should not directly, blatantly ask for sex because that's not seen as modest. Within that discourse, there are some poskim who say that what would constitute a violation of that, of modesty, would be a very aggressive type of demand. We need to have sex right now. Exactly. The wife would say to the husband, buddy, we're having sex, no conversation, (laughs) in the bedroom, now. And the the way that they actually, this is a tshuva from a posik name of Yehuda Ya'aleh, the way he actually shows this is because the Talmud says, well, what do you mean a woman can't ask for sex? Leah goes to Yaakov and says, Eli tavok, you're coming to my tent tonight. I paid, I bought you with these uh, dudaim, these mandrakes. So the Talmud says, well, okay, but so she can hint, but not demand. So the Yehuda Yaleh, this Tshuva, he says, that's a pretty strong hint. You're coming to my tent tonight. So he basically says... Well, he's any- coming to have tea. Well, maybe. <laughs> so he basically says anything short of sort of saying demanding, like, you know, no discussion, you're doing it, you know, you must, anything short of that is totally okay. So that's his position, and I think it's a big problem when here you have a mitzvah that's about the husband being responsive to the wife's needs, and women are told so much you can't ask, and then they feel that they can't let their husband know what their needs are, and it creates the exact opposite dynamic that halacha is trying to get to. So I think from the modesty perspective, we should define that very narrowly, and it's certainly not about putting the husband in an awkward situation. He's always supposed to be responsive to his wife's needs, whether she's verbalizing them or not. This makes me see red, and I've had some patients who say, I can't let my husband know when I'm in the mood for sex because I'm not allowed, and makes me want to rip my hair out. So, I mean, I feel like this is just part of and parcel of a general attitude towards modesty in an extreme way that comes out very non-beneficial to the woman. I feel like, as it is, most of the women I see have a hard time expressing what they want and what they need, and have a difficult time owning the fact that they are sexual beings and want to be sexual and have a lot of trouble figuring out a way that would be understood by the husband so they're not giving these small little hints that he does might not pick up and then she's really mad at him because he didn't pick up the fact that who wants that yes you should be able to say when you want to have sex and you know most couples kind of figure out their own language for that they have found from centuries and centuries, generations and centuries back, these clay pots that were used where they have figurines on them. And if you move the pot in a certain direction and it was the other direction, they realized that those had to do with beckoning the husband to, <laughs> to, to have sex, that the words didn't have to be used. And I actually had a patient who was really struggling because she wasn't always in the mood and her husband didn't want to ask because he started feeling he was putting pressure on her. So it was a little bit the opposite. But she got a little yes sign, and she would put a yes sign on her pillow when she was willing to have sex. And it worked really well for them. And then I started thinking, maybe we should produce yes signs for both of them, so that when both of them put a yes sign on, they know it's they're good to go, you know? Mm. Or if one person puts a yes sign on, it means like, oh, I could get in the mood for that. I feel like, if anything, as a society, we have to really push harder to make women comfortable asking, being sexual beings, being comfortable in their bodies, being able to ask for sex, and being able to know what they want. And so I, I think that is such a bad message to be giving people that they can't ask for sex because it's putting the husband in an uncomfortable yeah, position. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more about how that feeds into this, the negative messages that come through Tzniyut that basically tell women they can't own their sexuality, and not even in terms of their relationship with their husband. So I couldn't agree with that more. I do want to say, in terms of the question, well, what if the husband doesn't want to have sex. Like, is he putting put in a fair position? But that's not because you asked. That's, as I was saying, the husband has a responsibility always to be responsive, whether the woman is asking or not. And the reality is, I think in married life, you work to accommodate your partner's needs to the degree that it's feasible. And whether that means a particular 
thing that one person wants to be doing in the bedroom and the other person is maybe not so thrilled with, or whether that means like, do you want to have sex tonight? So that's true both in terms of the relationship. You know, sometimes you're not 100% raring to go, but you try to be responsive to your partner. And if it's really something that you can't reasonably do in a way of being present, in a way that would actually make it the type of sex that hopefully both of them are looking for, then okay, you can't do it. It's like any other mitzvah, you know, if you can't do it, you can't do it. And I don't just mean you can't physically do it. Can't do it in a way that you're really present. But sometimes just knowing that the other person's interested in having sex is in and of itself a turn on. A turn on. Right. So, you know, so if you're the woman asking this question, go for it. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Great, thank you. Dr. Marcus, it just really resonated with me, your point. There's enough things telling women to shut down their sexuality, and this doesn't need to be another one of them. And I think it's true outside the religious context. It's true just everywhere in general. So that really resonated with me. And one last response also to the turn-on point. You know, not because if there's a problem asking for sex, but sometimes the subtler hints can be more seductive and erotic. So that could be something, right? If the woman puts on a negligee and walks into the bedroom and throws glances, that could actually be much more powerful and erotic than just saying, I want to, let's go into the bedroom and have sex. It you know? really depends on how obtuse the husband is. <laughs> if you have questions for the show, you can submit them anonymously at www.thejoyoftext.org. Thank you, Dr. Deborah Race Fox. The Joy of Text is produced by Jewish Public Media, which is supported in part by a grant from Next and Atan. This episode was recorded by Mike Hurst and edited by David Svi Kalman. You can listen to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or with any podcast app. My name is Maharat Ramey Smith. Thank you so much for listening.